Turn your Bible to the book of Luke today, if you would. Book of Luke. Turn over to chapter 10. I want to look at a passage that if you've been around the church even for a moment, you've heard this, you've heard this passage preached and taught and turned every way but loose. So we may as well do it one more time. Tenth chapter, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, why don't you, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what's better, and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, help us today. Open our ears. Let us hear. Write on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Only one thing is needed. As contrasted with the many things. Now, obviously what is implied here is the priority. The one thing over the many. Years ago I heard a pastor on the West Coast, his name is Jack Hayford, very, very well-known speaker, teacher. And he made this statement, he said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Maybe some of you have heard that before. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I would submit to you to take off from Jack Hayford's statement, the one thing is to keep the one thing the one thing. It's the same concept. That great sage of the ages, Curly from City Slickers 1. He understood this. Of You have to figure out what this is. Because I believe that success is not just the identification of gifting or destiny. Success is the defining, the developing, and the defending of priority. Defending priority, developing priority, and defining it. Colossians 3.2 says, to set your minds. Meaning that somewhere there's, an, there's, there's a priority being established. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Psalm 131, verses 1 and 2. But I've not concerned myself with everything else. All those other things that are screaming and vying for my attention. We find many scriptural precedents of priority. We find the first commandment. Everybody got that one? Exodus 20, verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods. Right from the very beginning, God is establishing if you will get number one right, 
Numbers 2 through 10 will take care of themselves. That's the reality. You shall have no other gods. You know, we live in a moment where we don't live in Japan, 50,000 gods. Talking about Jesus is not a problem there. Just Adam is 50,001. The challenge is getting those folk to deny everything else. India, where there are literally millions of gods. I mean, you can drive through and you can just see. Every block has their own god and you can see flowers and fruit and sacrifices that have been made to literally kind of the borrow God in that particular place. We can say, well, I certainly am glad I live in the United States and we're, <clears throat> we're much more enlightened than that. Not really. At least they're honest about their worship and at least they acknowledge what their gods are. But we have a lot of gods in our culture that compete for our time and our affection and our worship talk more about that in a moment first commandment first importance first corinthians 15 paul writing in verse 3 what i received i passed on to you as of first importance and here it is that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures now paul sums up all of his writing, all of his words into this essential, what he calls first importance. And is that Christ was, he died for our sins, he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. That is the essence of the gospel. Everything else that's in this Bible, everything else that you will build your life upon has to always come back to that first importance that's why the table of communion is so important is that we are coming back and we are establishing that is the first importance and then there's first motivation end of first corinthians 12 paul writing again i will show you the most excellent way again a superlative the most excellent way and we find that in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. There's the priority. And if you look at all of these, be it the first commandment, be it that which is of first importance, whether it's a primary or first motivation, the common denominator that runs through all three of these happens to be what? Relational. It's relational. How we relate to God, God relates to us, we relate to one another. And yet, priority is a challenge for us. We make this statement. Where there is ill-defined or no priority, there will be a proportionate lack of passion and sense of destiny. A proportionate lack of passion and sense of destiny. I believe one of the great tragedies of our culture is not so much misplaced passion, but simply no passion at all. Show me a sinner that is passionate in his sin. I mean, full out going in the wrong direction. If they can violate some precedent, some precept of God, run, I mean, they're passionate. Let me just tell you, that same passion, once God snatches a man like that, and turns him around, that becomes a passionate disciple. 
the biggest challenge that I see in our culture today is not so much that we've got wrong passion, it's that we have no passion. Exemplified by this. Whatever. What, whatever. We have a whatever generation. They've been anesthetized to not really care. Now, I survived, and my, I survived teenagers. I should have a bumper sticker and a but I survived teenagers. And everyone here that's had a teenager knows what I'm talking about. Those of you that are just cradling your first in your arms, you're just like, not going to happen to me. I've got some parents in here. I'll point you to them in about 15 years. Because these little people turn into aliens and strangers and it just something, something happens to them. And I remember, I remember the teenage years in our household. And, you know, the, the one thing that would set me up was to, whatever, whatever. It's like, man... Slam a door, flip me off, F-bomb me, do something. Give me something back to work with here. Give me something to whoop. Give me something. Give me something to correct. Why why'd y'all get excited about that? All the parents say, whoop, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whoop that 17-year-old. Yeah. Can we get some help with that? Whatever. Whatever. And you see, it was that. What, what I saw there was not so much the disrespect as I saw something there that wasn't moldable. How do, you, how do you work with a man or a woman that has no priority and no passion in their life? What's there to direct and steer? You see, priority, well-defined, will produce passion. Conversely, where priority is not well-defined and deflected, it produces passivity. And everything about the God that we serve, he's a passionate God. Even, the, even the, the process of his suffering and his death is called passion. God doesn't want us to be dispassionate people. And yet, where our priorities are not established, many times we're just everywhere. And we're nowhere at the same time. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2. Solomon, the man. I mean, folk coming from all over the world. Man, is the story's true. And, you know, the, 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 the lifestyle of the rich and famous was down here and interviewing you. And, man, you just, you hooked up. Let's, let's read a little bit. Ecclesiastes, the second chapter, verse 8. I amassed silver and gold for myself. The treasure of kings and provinces acquired men and women singers, a harem, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Now, all of us are going, oh, yeah, yeah. I denied nothing 
my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Now, we look at those first couple of verses there, and we say, oh, yeah, I won't be some of that. Well, maybe not the harem part. But, but, we, but, we, but we look at that, and it's just like success, money, contentment in his labors. I mean, this is great. This is, my, this is the American ideal. But look in one more verse and see what it produced in Solomon. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. This is a man that he had everything and he had nothing. He had lost his sense of priority. That's why it says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where your treasure is. But you see, if we don't know where that treasure is, guess what? We have no heart. We're heartless as a result of not really being able to define what is treasure. What is priority? Aristotle said it this way. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. Why did I make that statement? It's simple. Because habit is a result of priority. Think about that for a moment. Habit is a result of priority. Whatever you deem important, you will find the time for. Whatever you deem priority, you will find the resources to fund. Come on. That's where your treasure is. There your heart is. There your priority lies. Uh Uh-oh. But habits are developed. They're established through right priorities or wrong priorities. I mean, some of the men, he says, I ain't going to no men's conference in two. I got better things to do. I'll be some kind of game on. I'll find one. And yet, somehow we'll find the priority to buy season tickets. We'll find the priority to order our work life and our family life in order to get to the game on time. Come on. And ladies, before we get to, you know, start, you know, just breaking another rib for your husband there, you know, there might be one or two things whereby which you can find priority as well. Come on. Uh, honey, are we going tonight? Not until my hair's ready. I hate my hair. Well, I'll just call and tell him we ain't coming then. Come on, man. You know what that means. Priority. So then, how do we establish a life based on the priority of priority? Number one, we need to create some white space. Simply, We need to eliminate some things. You know, the sculptor removes the negative space. Michelangelo in sculpting David, he said, I saw inside the stone David. And what he had to do was not reach in the stone and pull David out. What did he have to do? He had to remove everything around it in order that what was inside would be revealed. The sculptor was seeing something 
beyond just this chunk of granite or marble. And he removed everything that did not need to be there so that what was a priority could emerge. It's a marketing trend today toward what is known as white space. And rather than going to your website and you've got the music playing and the banners going back and forth, you know, and you, know, you go to it and there's just a picture and there's a few words over here and it's very clean, it's very sparse, and you go, oh. We look at the, we look at the, the, the house programs. And people walk in, oh, this is lovely. You know what they like about it? Because your junk's not in it. You don't know whether you need a decorator or a bulldozer. And so you walk in and people are, oh, look at the closets here. And it's just, it's just such an open concept and it just flows, you know. And it's, you know what I'm talking about. But it's the idea that they see something that's uncluttered. They see a room that being ready to be, you know, condemned by the federal government and pushed off the side of the earth. They see a room that's ready to be lived in. That has a purpose. That has a function. See, our consumer culture is based on acquisition. It's what makes it work. What makes it work is to you to go out and acquire something. I think one president famously said, after a disaster, go back to the malls. That was his answer. But you see, a lifestyle of acquisition breeds all kinds of other issues. One of it, it is the confusion of worth or value of a thing. It's a book written in 1998 called The Experience Economy. And at the time that this book was written, they did, they, they did a breakdown of the metrics of coffee. And at that time, coffee at wholesale was a dollar a pound, which equates to somewhere around two cents per cup. And so by the time then that you commoditize that coffee and run some water through it and put it in a cup, then in a, in sort of a pedestrian environment, that cup of coffee is a buck, buck and a half now. You know, just coffee and water. But now, we want to experience our java. We want to figure out how we can, first of all, get 800 calories out of that cup. So we double, triple shot, vanilla, caramel, latte, whip, you know, whatever it takes. And so we figured out how to take something that cost two cents and turn it into four dollars. Starbucks is four bucks. And so it's now become, come on, we, we can't even drink coffee anymore unless it has a green circle on it and a sleeve. We don't feel like we've gotten the full coffee experience. Interesting that the CEO of that company wrote a book literally called The Starbucks Experience. Because they realized that if I'm going to take something that costs two cents a cup at wholesale and turn it into $4, then I've got to bring some confusion as to what value is. Somebody said... He's not a coffee drinker, is he? He doesn't really understand the whole thing going on. But that's just one thing of where we've been told, come on, this is, this is, this is what you want. Out of that book, customers don't want choice. They just want exactly what they want. 
Oh, my. That sounds a lot like a three-year-old. Another book entitled In Praise of Slowness, which I really like because I'm getting old, so I can relate to a lot in this book. The author says this, the resulting... The result is a gnawing disconnect between what we want from life and what we can realistically have, which feeds the sense that there is never enough time. Do you ever feel that way? You get to the end of your day and it's just like, I just don't have enough time. I just don't have enough time. I had 17 things I might do. I just don't have enough time. It's amazing. I've defined lust for you before. We hear that word lust and we immediately kind of move it over to desires of the flesh that are outside of what God's intended. But lust, let me give you Jim's definition of lust. It's anything that God, that you want that God doesn't want you to have. It's desiring or having more than God has apportioned for you. And we have amazing ways of moving outside of those parameters, do we not? I've got a pocket full of credit cards right now. I mean, I can move beyond. Come on. And we wonder, where is the grace of God? Because when, we're, when we are where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, and having around our lives what we're supposed to have, there is the grace of God. There it is. And we wonder, what happened? Why, why is my soul so churned up all the time? Why do I go to bed tired and wake up tired? It's because those priorities have been moved around your life. We cannot do and have everything, ladies and gentlemen. Somebody say amen to that. Another blogger said it this way. It's easy when you're young to believe that what you desire is no less than what you deserve. To assume that if you want something badly enough, it's your God-given right to have it. And if that were something that would just describe the culture at large, it'd be one thing. But I see many times rise up in my own heart and, yes, among some of my other Christian colleagues, that saying, I want it! I want it! And thereby I'm calling it faith. And I'm calling it forth. And we wonder why our prayers go thunk. Thunk. It's because we're moving beyond that which God intends for us. Hmm. Number two is the myth of multitasking. And it is a myth. It's an absolute myth. Neurologists have figured this out. If you understand how your computer works, you begin to figure that out. It doesn't multitask. It just does repeated things. But it switches so quickly, it appears that they're happening simultaneously, but they're not. Your brain is not wired to do more than one thing at a time. This is the problem. And the myth is beyond design. Anytime anytime that we try to push a machine, an electronic device a human body, or the way that God has wired the human soul and the human mind, whenever we try to push it beyond design, invariably something will go wrong. Something will break down. 
And we've become experts at collecting information. We are the search engine society. I mean, today, you just go out, type it in, bang. I mean, within milliseconds, you've got all of the knowledge that's been amassed on the planet sitting there on your screen. And it used to be like, we would have to go to the library. People say, a library? Is that a Google thing? But now, but the problem is, we have all this information, but we don't know what to do with it. Is that we're losing our critical right brain function through getting buried under all of this information. Fascinating book written by Nicholas Carr titled The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Listen to this. Does multitasking result in better functioning? Creativity, inventiveness, productivity? The answer is no. The more you multitask, the less deliberate you become and the less able to think and reason out a problem. Isn't it interesting? What this means that now not only are we losing our ability to critically think and reason, but as a result, after being deluged now with all of this information, the, the, the idea that we can multitask. Let me tell you, the only real multitaskers on the planet are mothers. Okay? Would you get out of that toilet? Do not eat the dog. I mean, you know, m mothers are amazing. All right? I mean, I'm, you're, I'm have your father kill you when you get home. I mean, you, mothers, mothers are, I mean, they can cook and clean and do all this. I mean, they're, they are amazing. But that's a, that's a different skill set. All right? That's just, that's just different stuff right there. But yet we're called to have the mind of what? The mind of Christ. Wow. Hmm. And yet much of the conventional wisdom of the day is just confused. And part of that confusion is we've lost our sense of priority. We have lawmakers who have lost their sense of priority. I guess I'll have to say this. I'm in it now. is that rather than looking at it, what might be best for the constituents and the, and the nation as a whole, we're more concerned with our ideological lines being held. It's tragic. Where is the priority? Where are the statesmen? Sorry, it's been a hard week between the Pope and the sequester and everything. It's just... The sinkholes in Florida. I was just, I'm just... It's another reason why not to go to Florida. All right. Number three, pace, pace. My wife and I last night went up to Baltimore and heard the BSO do the Mozart Requiem. It's an amazing piece of music, last piece that Mozart wrote. And my wife and I have heard this piece for years, heard it the first time when we were music majors together back in the day. And this orchestra plowed into this piece, and it was just, just an amazing piece of music, but they were trucking. They, I mean, it was... They, they, man, we, we kind of looked at one another. It's like, you know, are they trying to get to the buffet before 10? Or, you know, because, I mean, because there was something imprinted on us of a certain rhythm and a certain pace. And they were just, they were just blowing past it. You see, progress is often measured in terms of speed. 
That if we can find a computer or a microwave or we can find a 20-second popcorn, you know, whatever, instant, instant this, fast this, you know, speed dating, fast food, those two words should never be used together in the same sentence. But everything, but, but we see if it's moving faster, it must be what? It must be good. So we've been inculcated to think that all progress is what? It's good because it's faster. And yet there are some things that speed actually gets in the way. You can't fast cook a relationship. Let me just tell you, it won't work. Inasmuch as you cannot fast cook discipleship. One of our apostolic leaders says this about the process of discipleship. Slow is fast. Here's Jesus. Two or three miles per hour, walking with the disciples, hour after hour. Slow, but guess what's happening? Relationship, impartation, disciples are being made. Amen? And we come in here and it's just like, man, don't go, up, don't go beyond 11.15. I got to go. You don't, I got to beat the Baptist to the buffet today. You, you, need, to, you, need, to, you need to shut this down. So if you can disciple me in 22 minutes from the pulpit, then go ahead, preacher boy. But I don't, you don't, I, I don't have a whole lot of time beyond just the Sunday thing right here. You can't make disciples like this. You can start a process, but it's not the whole process. I, I can only mention these other two. Number four is focus. Priority is focus. One of the gods of our culture is amusement. That word literally means not to think. Muse means to think. The prefix negates it. So amusement means we'll do the thinking for you. Thank you. Just sit down and shut up. We'll think for you. This is what media tells us. And even, even at best, if it were neutral, it is still distracting. And I believe there's a four-point process of distraction, diffraction, delusion, and deception where most of us find ourselves. Distraction is just simply exactly what it is. It's how accidents happen. I mean, David was supposed to be at war at the time when kings were at war. What was David doing? He was sneaking and peeking over the wall. Kind of old-school porn, you know? And guess what happened? He got an eye full. And he got in a lot of trouble, did he not? Because he got what? Distracted. Diffraction. Just trying to go into too many different directions at the same time. Multitasking. Diffraxis. Delusion. Happens as well. It means to reduce the strength or force or efficiency. And finally, deception. Most of our culture, cu culture is deceived. Do you realize that? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. There's a deception at work. And then finally, number five, we have to allow God to establish our priorities. I appreciate my friends and well-meaning folk and the bloggers and the books that tell me I need to, you should, you need. I mean, and we have all... And everybody is out there trying to tell you what your priorities should be. Come on. 
and, and establish and establish and reestablish it. If you'll just do it this way in this order, then everything will be great. You have a great marriage. Your hair will go back in. You'll get skinny. Everything will be great. If you'll just work this in this order, you should. You need to. Ephesians 5.17 says, though, don't be stupid. Understand what the Lord's will is. That will is priority. And saints, listen to me. Anything born of God will always have to be defended. There in the desert, the woman about to give birth to the baby, the dragon right there, ready to devour it. It's why we get to the end of our day and we just, and we realize, well, another day and I didn't get to that one thing, that priority. The tyranny of the urgent pressed out that which was really important. It's tragic. And yet God has, lived, has designed us to live our lives with purpose, with a sense of passion. But the only way we can do that is through the right Defining, developing, and defending of priorities around our life. Amen.